You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. All right, good, uh, good to have you in. And for those of you tuning in online, thank you for uh, joining us virtually. We are beginning a brand new series this morning that we have titled Coffee Cup Faith. Yes, where we are going to be examining some of the more popular verses that you often see on the side of your coffee cup at your local Christian bookstore. Uh, it's a common experience here in the South, for sure, in the Bible Belt, maybe not as much up North, but definitely in the South to find all kinds of things, right? Coffee cups, shirts, hats, stickers, a variety of other day-to-day items, all with random Bible verses scribbled on the side of them with absolutely zero context to them whatsoever. They're just sort of shot out there on anything that we can put them on. And more often than not, they are strategically selected Bible verses. They are usually selected to convey a message that is not at all the actual message that was intended in the scripture. And I really want to emphasize strategically. Uh, You could think of it this way, that not all coffee cup Bible verses are created equally. There are just some verses in the Bible, in God's inerrant, holy, inspired word of God that will never make it on the side of a coffee cup. That is maybe until now. Let me give you a couple of them just for fun. Number one, Deuteronomy 28, 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Yeah. Now, I'll be honest, with the rise of monkeypox, this is a little in vogue. I, not the nicest thing, though. Parents, if you want to really flex on your kids in the morning, if you get up, you're a little grumpy in the morning, you can put this, Leviticus 29, for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. The next one is really bad. Parents, there are some biological terms on this one, so cover your kids' ears if you shield them from perfectly healthy terms for the bodies that God gave them. Deuteronomy 23.1, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. God's words, not mine. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, that these are all Old Testament verses, and everything changed when Jesus came, and the New Testament has all the nice verses in it, right? And it is true that when when Jesus came, he changed everything, and he, he still said things, though, that would never make it to the side of your mug. This is a great one for men, especially who are involved in the purity movement. Jesus took a different approach than accountability and 12 steps. Matthew 5, 29, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. No need for accountability, just pull the old eyeball right out of its socket. You're good to go. I'm being funny, but I think it illustrates the point that there's a reason why some of these verses are not on coffee cups. There's a strategic process that goes into selecting some of these verses and deciding which goes on the mug and which doesn't. And so the aim of this series is to look at some of the most popular verses 
and talk about what is being implied and compare that to the actual message that is intended in the scripture in the context of the entire passage. And I'm going to say up front that you are likely going to be familiar with almost all of the verses that we're covering over the next eight weeks. They are all very popular verses, very well-known verses, but we're going to start this morning with perhaps the most frequent offender. And uh, each week, we're going we're gonna to do a big reveal here. Our, our very own John Lipitsky made us this sweet little box and podium, and really more for those online. But here it is, week number one's verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Yes, it is a classic. Let's read it together. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I remember uh, when I was in high school, uh, I never got a yearbook. I grew up in a little bit of a broken home, and I never got a yearbook. And I always played it off as like, I don't care about that. It's stupid anyways. But I think deep down, I, I would have really loved to have had a yearbook at some point. My senior year, they started doing this thing where uh, parents could pay extra money, you know, if you like really loved your kids, um, then you could pull out either a half or a whole page and sort of commit it to the kid, right? share something inspirational for them to take and keep forever. And uh, I remember there was this, uh, this friend of mine, I was looking through his yearbook, and, and, uh, and one, of, one of my classmates, her parents took out a whole page, and it had her picture, and it, you know, it was nice, and a couple pictures of the family, and under it, in big blue letters, it said, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And I remember I was really triggered by this. I mean, I, you know, and this was before triggering was even a thing, right? This was 2004. I didn't even get a yearbook to begin with, much less a whole page dedicated to me. And I remember reading that and thinking to myself, even as a, a non-Christian, because I wasn't a Christian during that time, I didn't grow up in church, I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that verse means what they're implying here. Like, that just can't be real. That's, there's there's got to be more to the story here, right? It's sweet. I think the intention is nice. She was a senior. She's graduating from high school. The whole world ahead of her. And, and these well-meaning parents put this verse in there so as to say, you know, God has plans for you, sweetheart. You, know, you, you have a bright and successful future. You're, you're going to get into a good college, and you're going to succeed, and you have a future that's, that's wonderful ahead of you. And there, there's an intended message there in the way that it was utilized in this yearbook. And, and I'm, it, I'm convinced it's not the same that, that God intended for us to understand it as. God, we, we put verses like this on coffee cups to convey ideas that we want to hear that I want to be reminded of, regardless of whether or not it's actually accurate. Um, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 in a yearbook is a nice thought, but, but is this really how we should think about it? Is this really the, the, the idea that God was intending to his people all those years ago? Does, does, this, does this verse convey anything to us about our future jobs or our education or whether or not we're going to be happy or prosperous or have big families and so on? My suspicion is that what we're going to find out, not only this morning, but perhaps throughout this entire series, is that usually there's a lot more to the story, and that what is on the side of your mug only scratches at the surface of it and generally misses the point, and that overwhelmingly the biblical story couched within its proper context is always far richer 
and more comforting than anything that we can conjure up on our own. So let's jump in and talk about the context for a moment of this passage because the context of God's word to his people in Jeremiah 29, 11 greatly shapes the way we hear and understand what God is saying. The context here is incredibly and valuably important. What I wanna do is give you a brief history of the Hebrew people. Uh, to walk through the beginnings of what eventually becomes the nation of Israel and talk about what leads up to this point. Because if you don't understand what God has historically desired to do through Israel, you won't fully understand what's going on in this passage. What we eventually call the nation of Israel begins in Genesis chapter 12 in the land of Haran when God begins to speak to a man named Abram. He says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is how the nation of Israel finds its beginnings. Before they're ever a nation, if you go all the way back to like sort of the prequels of the nation, this is how it begins. God is going to make Abram, who we later call Abraham, into a great nation. How does he do that? Abraham fathers a son named Isaac. Isaac fathers a son named Jacob. Jacob gets into this really trippy wrestling match with God and nearly breaks his hip and is renamed at the end of it. And his name is now Israel. Israel has many sons and those sons have many families and they populate into tribes and eventually take the land that God promised them after they come out of Egypt with Moses and Joshua. The nation is born, they are finally in the land that God promised them, and all of this, everything that took place, beginning with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, was leading up to a purpose. God had a plan and a purpose for Israel. He chose them to be the nation that would impact the world with his salvation. Israel was to become a beacon of light in a dark world and hope for the hopeless. They were to draw others into the worship of the one true God. That was their purpose. Their purpose, his plan for them, was to be evangelistic and to draw out the nations and into a covenant with Yahweh. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about this very thing, Isaiah 49, 6. He says, I will make as you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was their purpose, to reach the world with the salvation of God, to influence the nations around them. And of course, the opposite took place. Rather than influencing the world, the world began to influence them. They were told by God explicitly not to worship idols. Don't marry other people from other nations who worship idols because chances are it's going to rub off on you. Don't engage in sexual immorality, he says, over and over and over again. And they do all of these things over and over again. But God is good, isn't he? And he is patient with them. And and rather than judging them, he sends prophets to warn them repeatedly over and over. And prophet after prophet comes onto the scene. And they say to the people of God, doom is coming upon you if you do not repent. And of course, they're hard at hearing. They don't repent. 
Eventually, because of the sin of Solomon, David's son, Israel is split into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the prophets continue, some to the north and some to the south, repeatedly saying, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. God's judgment is coming. If you don't repent, repent. It's coming. It's going to happen. The, the, the northern kingdom uh, is a bit more aggressive in their sin. They have literally no good kings throughout their history. And in 722 BC, God allows the Assyrians to come onto the scene and decimate them and lead them into captivity. The southern kingdom uh, fares a little bit better. They last a little bit longer. They do have some good godly kings throughout the, uh, the, the arc of their existence. Uh, eventually, though, because of the many evil kings that they have in between, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, come and uh, destroy the temple and take the people of Judah in Jerusalem into captivity. And this, this whole experience is a massive, massive judgment on God's people. It's a huge deal. Because of their sin and their unwillingness to repent, they are forcibly taken from their homes. They are put in chains. They are taken away from the land that God gave them, that they found their identity within, and into captivity into a foreign land, and they no longer had their temple. They could no longer sacrifice. They could no longer fully obey the law. They were destitute, and they were scattered across the nations. And it is during that time that Jeremiah 29, 11 is written. The people have sinned. They failed to do what, what God called them to do. They refused to listen to the prophets and repent. God sends them into captivity as judgment, and it is there in judgment, in chains, in prison, that Jeremiah writes these words down in a letter and sends it off to them. Now, I want to just read the text here. We'll walk through it. I'll give you a, kind of a big idea afterwards that I think we can take away from this, but, but I want to just begin by reading the text, allow God's word to speak for itself. Look at verse 1, Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Notice everyone is included in this. It's not just the lower caste people, it's the priests, it's the prophets, it's every, the elders, everyone, and notice it's the surviving ones, which implies some didn't survive. A lot of them died along the way. <clears throat> that is Jeremiah's audience. And look down at verse four, this is what the letter says. It says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pay attention to that. What is God saying? I sent you there, not Babylon. I'm responsible, not Nebuchadnezzar. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So God gives them some instructions. Build houses while you're there. Start families. 
Get married, have kids, have your kids have kids, start a family, multiply there, make a life there. Why? Because you're not going anywhere anytime soon. It's going to be a while. And pray for that city that you hate, that you do not want to be in, seek for its welfare while you're there. Why? Because if you got to be there, it would be better for this city to be prosperous because then you benefit. There's a little silver lining here. So, so don't be antagonistic towards the Babylonians. Pray for them. Seek their welfare because then you'll at least have something good for the next several decades of your life. Look down at verse 10. This is really where our passage picks up. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This reads a little different in its context, doesn't it? Jeremiah 29, 11, listen, is not a pep rally verse. It's not a verse that says God wants you to have a lot of money. God wants you to be successful in your business ventures. God wants you to get all the promotions. God wants you to have your big breakthrough. No, that is not what this says at all. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a hope-filled promise given to a hopeless people. It is a hope-filled promise given to a hopeless people. The people of God during this time were hopeless. They were broken by their sin. They're living in the consequences of it. They likely believed God was done with them, game over. You're the people of God, man. You've, you've survived everything. You've had major armies year after year after year attempt to take you down. And by God's power alone, you survived. You didn't even survive. You, you had victory over them. World power after world power comes along, and they don't stand a chance for us because we're God's chosen people. And now we're in chains, and our temple is destroyed, and God must have abandoned us. Game over. And God's promise to them in the midst of all of this during this 70-year time in captivity is, I'm not done with you yet. This is going to take a long time, but I do still have plans for you. You do still have a future. It's just going to take a while. And to be clear, God does fulfill this. That's the amazing part about it. When you continue through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, what you find out is that <clears throat> during that 70-year period of captivity, the Babylonians are then destroyed by the Persians. The Persians come onto the scene, and they're the next big fish in the pond, and so they take over, and at the end of this 70-year period of exile, God raises up a Persian king by the name of Cyrus, who signs a decree of liberation, allowing the Israelites to slowly return back to the land once again that God promised them all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. 
And if you remember in our Under the Influence series, we talked about the three phases of the Israelites moving back into the land. It began with Zerubbabel, who went back to rebuild the temple. And then it begins in the second phase with Ezra. Ezra comes and reestablishes the law so that the temple can be fully utilized. And then the third phase, we bring in Nehemiah who comes in and uh, builds the wall, fortifies the city. And eventually, Jerusalem is again this blossoming city, fully functioning, full of commerce, full of life, temple in full operation. The law is being observed. There's religious reform. There's this sort of huge revival that takes place within God's people, and they have a secure wall in place to prevent any nation from coming in and doing what happened to them already. They're fully restored. And beyond that, they do eventually fulfill their purpose as well. Uh, they, they continue to uh, remember their, their plan that, that God had for them was to influence the world, to bring forth his salvation to all the nations. And as the nation returns back to the land, time progresses and eventually a child is born, isn't he? And a Messiah comes, Christ, and with him the kingdom of God and the gospel And after his death and burial and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes to his people and the kingdom of God begins to spread from one small city into a global movement. God's promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 comes true. He does bring them back to the land after 70 years. He does prosper them by preserving them and allowing the Messiah to spring forth in their midst. And they do fulfill their calling in sending the gospel out into the four corners of the world. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. What I love about this passage is the way in which it demonstrates how hopeless suffering can eventually become hopeful security. It shows that someone can both be dealing with and caught up in the fallout and the consequences of their sin, and yet at the same time, by God's grace, be able to grow in the midst of it. The people of God were hopeless in captivity, and yet, think about this, They come out of captivity a holier people than they were when they they went in. The experience of suffering then becomes grounds for spiritual growth. This is a needed reminder. There, There are times, and many of you are experiencing this right now in your life, when you've made a mess of your life, when you've just made all the wrong choices. And and, and you have made a mess of your life or your relationships or your marriage or you're in the middle of the fallout and you feel like you are free falling and it is dark and there is no hope in the world and you are suffering. And maybe that suffering isn't even your fault. Maybe it's just the result of living in a fallen world. Maybe someone else in your life has sinned against you. Regardless, it hurts and it feels hopeless. It feels like there is no future, there is no hope, there's there's nothing at the end of this. Where is this all going? And this passage is a reminder that God can use this time in your life. He can use this season that you are currently in to shape you more into the image of his son Jesus that when you come out of it, you're more like him. It becomes profitable for you. So let's talk about it. I got one point for you this morning and it is a doozy. It's a doozy. One point. We're going to be talking about God's plan for your life, and you are going to absolutely hate it. 
Here it is. God's plan for your life involves suffering and lots of it. And lots of it. Maybe not the most uplifting Sunday morning message for you. I'm sorry about that. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Uh, It's true, though, and it's a message that we need to hear. God's plan for your life involves a healthy serving of suffering. I'm not talking about like a a craft restaurant serving size. I'm talking about like Cracker Barrel serving size. Like make you want to die afterwards serving size, right? This message of suffering is one that permeates throughout the entirety of the New Testament beginning with the life of Jesus himself. You know, it's funny that Jesus is often cast as this, like, positive teacher, the prince of peace, bringing good tidings to everyone, right? And yet he talks an awful lot about suffering and hell and death. I don't know how we, we miss that, but, but he does talk a lot about suffering. Luke 9.22, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and then, oh, by the way, killed. Yeah. He says in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is saying, this is important, there is no glory without suffering. There is no glory without suffering. And then what does he tell us to do in response to this life of suffering that he is about to lead? He says, come and share in this suffering with me and die with me. Matthew 16, 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him put on a good pair of clothes and come to church. He says, let him deny himself and take up this instrument of death, his cross, and follow me and come and die. This is a message that continues on throughout the early church, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter has the audacity to tell us when things get bad, celebrate. Throw a party when things get really, really rough. Can you imagine the impact that it would have on the world if when things got bad in your life, Christians were like, let's throw a party. Invite everyone. Don't do that. They'll think you're in a cult. Second Corinthians... (laughs) 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, this is important, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort as well. This one's very important. Hear what Paul is saying here. He's saying we cannot share in the comfort of Jesus without first sharing in his suffering. It's like that old song by Albert King, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants the, com- the comfort of Jesus, but nobody wants to suffer. But glory comes after suffering. Glory and exaltation come after suffering. In fact, Jesus is often referred to in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, but Luke does this as well, as the son of David. The son of David. D- Jesus and, and David are connected in a lot of ways through the Old and New Testament. Uh, David serves as a kind of type of Christ. 
Uh, His life is predictive of the kind of life that Jesus is going to live. Jesus uh, is of the Davidic line. Uh, David is in his genealogy. One of the reasons that Matthew includes that is to demonstrate how Jesus is a Davidic heir. Uh, He is going to sit on the Davidic throne, fulfill the Davidic covenant, so on and so forth. David was the most important king in the Old Testament, one of the most important people in the Old Testament. And his life is predictive. It patterns the life of the Messiah as well. Think about this. David is a young boy from a small town. He is anointed as the king by a prophet, Samuel. Uh, But before he takes the throne after his anointing, he suffers at the hands of his people as he is chased around the world by Saul and Saul's army before eventually he is exalted to the throne. He is anointed, he suffers and then he's exalted to the throne. His life predicts the life of Jesus. Jesus is a young boy from a small town. He is anointed at his baptism with a prophet present, John the Baptist. He suffers at the hands of his people through his death, burial, and resurrection before he is eventually exalted to the right hand of the Father where he sits on his throne. Anointing, suffering, and then exaltation. And this is the pattern that he calls believers to as well. Anointing in our baptism and rebirth, suffering, and then exaltation as we are uh, co-heirs with him in the future kingdom. You want glory in your life. If if you're someone that's like, yeah, I, I want that, Pastor Derek. I want glory. Yeah, I want prosperity. Who wants prosperity? We all love prosperity. I want success. Yes, praise God, I want success. Here's how you get it, you ready? Pray for suffering. Listen, it's, it's not a popular message. It's not a popular message. It's not going to get me on Daystar or TBN. I have zero, zero expectations from getting a call from the 700 Club after this one. But this is the underlying current of Jeremiah 29, 11. It is the underlying message of most of Scripture. It's just not what we want to hear. And frankly, it's not what the people of Jeremiah's day wanted to hear either. In fact, God addresses this very thing. There were false prophets during Jeremiah's time who would go around and they would say to the people during exile, hey, this isn't going to last that long. You guys just hang on. This is is not what God, there's more to this. We're going to only be here for a moment and then God is going to sweep in and he's going to crush Babylon and we're going to be back in the land. This is just his way of destroying him. It's like a Trojan horse. We're going to get in from the inside and then he's going to rally the troops and and we're going to be back in in our land in no time. And, And listen to what God says about these false prophets. This is Jeremiah 29 verses 8 and 9. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. God is saying, they are telling you what you want to hear. They are telling you that I don't want you to suffer and that none of this is going to last that long, and they are wrong. They're lying to you. They're lying to you. God's plan involves suffering and lots of it, but let's get to the hopeful part. I want to send you out of here totally downtrodden. Let me give you a truth. God never promises to deliver you out of your suffering but he does promise to deliver you through it. 
Let me say that again. God never promises to deliver you out of your suffering, but he does promise to deliver you through it. Why? Because God wants to, I want you to hear this, God wants to give you a hope. God wants you to have hope. We are a people marked by hope. And what we're going to find out this morning is that there is a pathway to hope. The Bible describes a pathway to hope, and that pathway begins with suffering, and it leads to some other positive things, but it culminates in a God-given, God-exalting hope, a firm, foundational hope. And so let's talk about this. I've titled this message this morning, A Pathway to Hope, because there is a way in which God leads us to find it, and it begins with suffering. That's where some of you are, and if you're not, just wait, it'll, it'll get there. And suffering, here's the first thing I want to tell you about, suffering produces endurance, Suffering in your life is positive because it produces endurance. Jesus' half-brother James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not the message we want to hear from James. But it's, again, it's the same message of Jesus and Peter and Paul. When you suffer, rejoice. Count it all joy. Celebrate. Throw a party but not just because the Bible says so. There's a real reason behind this. It leads to other things. And James tells us what at least one of them are. Uh, Look at verse three. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So get what he's saying here. The suffering in your life that you are facing or that you have faced or that you will face It will, if you will allow God to have this happen, it will lead to something good in the end. It's going to produce what the, I I just imagine this is how Amish people speak, steadfastness. No one talks like that. Name the last time, honestly, raise your hand, the last time you used steadfastness really in a conversation. You didn't. You're lying. (laughs) I'm almost certain of it. It's the Greek word hupomone. It's a word that means uh, literally, if you, it's two words put together, literally translated to stand under pressure, to stand under pressure. It's often translated as patience or perseverance or endurance. I like that one a lot, endurance. In other words, pressure is something that we, we want to escape. So when we suffer, when bad things happen, there's pressure on my life now, and I want to do everything I can to get out of it. I want to avoid it. I don't like pressure. I hate pressure. And I will run from it. I will do everything in my power to get away from it as fast as I can. And what James is saying here is that suffering teaches me how to endure pressure, how to stand under it and endure it, to have patience under it. And as we learn how to endure that pressure, more things follow. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul says almost the exact same thing that James just said. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again. Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Same word, hupomone, steadfastness, patience, endurance. But then he goes on. There's sort of a chain reaction that takes place. Suffering produces endurance. And then verse four, he says, and endurance produces character. Now, what does this mean? 
character. It's the Greek word dokime. It's a word that means that which has been proven by trial, that which has been tested and proven, which has endured and stood the test. It has proven itself. It's a word that's used in extra biblical literature in Greek to describe the refining process of metals. Uh, where you would use fire to heat metals and, and bring out the impurity of those metals to leave that metal in a more pure form afterwards. So it comes out stronger and it's proven now. I know that I can stand under pressure. I have character. I lasted. Now I know moving forward that I can do it again. I want to clarify something though. This is not saying that suffering somehow is a mechanism by which you learn how strong you are or how awesome you are or how capable you are. There's a very popular philosophy right now, especially in the like self-improvement and fitness world. It's all about like you need to just do more hard things so you can see how awesome you are. 75 hard, that's one of the big ones, right? David Goggins, another real common, frequent offender. It's the idea that says if you do hard things, you're going to gradually learn that you're not weak, that you're actually really strong because you could do all these awesome, awesome stuff, right? You, you, you're way, way more capable than you are. And I'll be honest, like, that sounds exciting. I like a good challenge, right? I love doing those kinds of things. I think there are some positive things perhaps that take place, but I'm not sure it's actually a helpful message in the long run. I think probably the negatives way outweigh the positives. And here's why, specifically from a Christian perspective, the entire message of Christianity is not that I suffer to learn how capable I am, but to learn how utterly incapable I am. The point of suffering for the Christian is to push me towards dependence on Christ, not independence in myself. So for example, Paul did some really hard things on the mission field, right? And he describes them. He describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We thought that God had sentenced us to die. But he did so to teach us how awesome we are. No, that's not what he says. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There are some benefits to pushing yourself physically. There's no doubt about that. I think, it's, I think it's a good thing to, push, to, to, to have activity in your life. And, and there is something really empowering about, about lifting a weight off the ground or running longer than you thought you could or whatever. I'm not, I'm not disparaging that. I, I think that is, there are some good things of that. But, but it doesn't translate to suffering in life and in trauma. It's not A to A and B to B. Just because you can deadlift something doesn't mean that when trauma happens in your life, now I'm strong enough to handle it. It will crush you if that's your mindset. It will obliterate you. 
You will be shattered into a bunch of pieces if you do that. The point of suffering is to learn how to stand under it, not because I'm strong, but because Christ is strong, and to come out of it stronger and more capable, not because I'm stronger and more capable, but because Christ's power has been working through me as I have yielded myself to him in these moments of pain. That proves character in my life, not my character, Christ's character in me. And ultimately, Paul says that that character then produces hope. Here we are, where we were wanting to go this whole time. Romans chapter five, verses four and five, he says character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This proven testing produces hope and it's not wishful thinking. It's not like, I hope we can go get tacos after this. We had them yesterday. There's no way my wife will agree again. It's a bad hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's, it's a hope that is based on prior experience of seeing the faithfulness of God in my life. And it is reaffirmed by God's love, and it's not love that I'm just sort of like trying to grasp in thin air for. It is love that has been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit of God who has been given to me as a believer. You see, God won't deliver you from your suffering, but he will deliver you through it because it is through suffering that we find hope, that hope is born, that hope is forged and strengthened. It would actually be quite unloving of God to deliver you out of your pain. You know why? Because his purpose for you, according to Romans chapter eight, is for you to become more like his son Jesus and suffering accomplishes that purpose. You gain patience and endurance. It builds proven Christ-like character in your life. It bolsters hope that is trustworthy because it's based on the faithfulness of God. It's not a hollow, wishful thinking, but one that is established by the Holy Spirit who reminds us that God is capable and that I am not. And this is what happened to the people in Jeremiah 29 as well. They suffered for 70 years it felt hard and hopeless, and yet they came out much holier people on the backside of that. That experience taught them a deeper understanding of hope based on God's faithfulness, not their own. And that, check this out, that is the definition of true prosperity. That is the definition of prospering, of welfare in the Bible, is being rich in faith not in worldly crap that's gonna fall apart and disappear. When we come to the end of ourself and we come to the beginning of the Lord. You know, sometimes I think we get fixated on the unfair circumstances that we face. You know, it's not fair. This shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be happening. Why is God allowing this? Why, what? When in reality, as Christians, we should be rejoicing that these are actually opportunities for God to begin to sanctify me, to develop me, and shape me more into the image of Jesus. That is a good thing. Maybe you have. You know, and this is a church where you can be honest about that. And I, lo and I love to be able to say that to you in earnest, that we are a church where you can positively confess and not be ashamed of the fact that you've really made a mess of your life. Maybe you really have ruined your marriage. Maybe you have entered into full-blown addiction. Maybe you are angry 
about everything. Maybe you're anxious about everything. Maybe you have become controlling to a point that it is sabotaging the relationships in your life, or you are insecure to the point that it is sabotaging the people that you love in your life, and they are moving away from you, and you are hurting because of it. I want you to know this as your pastor. God is not interested in delivering you out of that, but he will deliver you through it. And I want you to know I gotta be honest with you about this. I have to tell you the truth about this. He may not restore what you have broken. He may not put your marriage back together. He may not put the things that you have shattered back together, but he will put you back together. And not just according to your own image, but according to his image. And not according to your capabilities and your purpose, but his capabilities and his purpose. And you will, God willing, come out of those things with destruction around you more like the image of Jesus than you were before it all went downhill. And that is prosperity. Yes. You'll learn how to stop living by your own strength and start depending upon the Father and, and, and in doing so, become like the God that you worship. That is a future and a hope. That is what it truly means to prosper. You know, I think that if this verse, which, by the way, this cup, I keep forgetting. It's so far away from me. It has coffee in it. <laughs> I think if this verse were written today to the church, because it wasn't written to the church, it was written to Israel. But I think if it were written to the church today, I think it would read this way. I think it would say, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for you to suffer. To make you more like myself. Plans for an eternal future with me. To truly prosper you. If you want glory and you want prosperity and you want to be more like Jesus, then follow in the footsteps of our Lord and suffer well. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that your word is not always what we want to hear. I thank you for that. I thank you that its promises are not the promises that, that we hope they are because your promises are far greater than the promises that we desire. And your plans are far greater than the plans that we hope to live out. And as hard as it is, as difficult as life may be, you have not let go of us and that you will work in the midst of our pain and our suffering as exiles. Just as Israel was in exile from their land, your servant Peter reminds us that we are exiles in this world meant for your kingdom, not this one. And that during this time, we will suffer. And we pray, God, that as we suffer, we learn how to endure it. That it's a refining process where the character of Christ becomes more apparent in our lives and, and our own character diminishes. And that it produces a kind of hope that when we enter into the next season of suffering, we do so with a little less angst knowing that you were faithful then and you will continue to be faithful in the future as well. And that is truly hope and prosperity that we need. How we love you and how we thank you and we worship you for who you are and what you do. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. So next week, we come back, week two. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what, what we're preaching on. Uh, you'll find out when I lift the box. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. God bless you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.